This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Patrick Bartley. We're going to have a very special episode today all about Sir Matt Busby. One of the main reasons I want to speak to, to Patrick about Matt Busby is he's written this incredible book here, um, Sir Matt Busby, the man who made a football club. Now, people of my generation will think Sir Alex Ferguson is that man, of course, in, in modern yeah. recent times he is, but it all really started for Manchester United with the work of Sir Matt Busby, as you can read in this book. But we're going to talk about the book today. We're going to talk about Sir Matt and his career today as well. Um, so it's going to be a really good show today. I hope you really enjoy this because Paddy is the man who, as I say, has written this book, knows a lot about Matt Busby, and I'm really excited to, to get started. First of all, Paddy, the, the first question I've got for you is, Matt Busby's a character born and brought up in Lanarkshire, which, as I say, is about 45 minutes from me here in Inverclyde. What was his upbringing like? Because it was very different times to the world we live in now. We think uh, coronavirus can be traumatic. Listen to this. Matt Busby was born in 1909, uh, five years before the start of the First World War. It was a uh, he was born into miners' rows, you know, these uh, quite unpretentious, but comfortable enough family homes, you know, no running water, but there was a tap outside. You, you, could, you had to go up to the privies for the, you know, if you wanted to go to the toilet. But, you know, the families made the most of them and there was always coal because it was a mining community. So there was always hot water for the, um, the baths at the end of the day and all that um so it was it wasn't a bad up uh it was it wasn't a bad upbringing at all he had uh uh his mom i would say looking back over his lifetime his mom and his wife um were probably the two most important people in in his life is the two biggest influences on his behavior and his success i think and his mom certainly looked looked after the home. His dad was a was a miner, uh, and he had two uncles, his uncle Tommy and his uncle Willie, who were his dad's brothers. Um, both lived; they were miners too. Both lived in the same. However, in 1914, when Matt was five, the uh, four, the Second World, the First World War broke out. And his dad went to enlist. His dad was of Irish heritage and he was actually assigned to the, this was Alex Busby. Um, he was assigned to the Royal Irish Regiment, which, uh, and he was sent to County Tipperary to train. But he lasted only a few weeks because he had varicose veins. And the army said, uh, nah, sorry, we're gonna have to send you back on health grounds 
Uh, odd that somebody so young should have varicose veins, but a different, diff different sort of, it was obviously a hereditary thing because he passed it on to Matt. But um, um, yeah, it, it, it seemed, well, it wasn't good news because he wanted to serve. Um, although although some people of Irish heritage, you know, were not too keen on the war. The, the vast majority were very patriotic United Kingdom. And, uh, and Matt's father was certainly that. He <clears throat> later, about a year later, the casualties, I mean, it, the, the phrase was, it'll be all over by Christmas. I didn't say which Christmas. And, you know, that initial huge uh, optimism that, yeah, we'll, we'll give Kaiser Bill a bloody nose and all that. Um, it, it proved not true. The uh, casualties, as we know now, were utterly horrendous. And, uh, well, suffice it to say that after a year, nobody was too worried about your varicose veins in. So he enlisted, tried again to enlist and was accepted at Huddingston, which you probably know. And um, uh, he, he, he then, I think it was the Cameron Highlanders, he, he joined. On the first day at the Somme, his uncle Willie had died. His father um, died later at, I think it was Ypres. He was involved in a very long campaign to uh, attack a, a village that was German occupied called Guemap. And uh, in, in, in you know, Northern France, Belgium region. And uh, he, the problem with this British uh, army strategists was that they didn't stagger the rest periods. So they, the, the soldiers would be going in, digging in trenches, you know, making positions. Um, but then they went home, but they went, retreated again to rest and came back the following morning. This, of course, gave the Germans time to form defensive positions. And when the time came for Alex Busby to make his advance, the Germans already had installed positions in barns and uh, farmhouses, and their machine guns just opened a fusillade, and the, 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 the men fell in huge numbers. And one of those who died was, was Alex Busby, Matt's father. So that was his uncle Willie and his dad died. And um, it was thought by the family for a long time that he'd been hit by sniper fire, but in actual fact, his, his time of death was certified as between the 23rd and 28th of the month. So it, it clearly he'd been in such a, a, a horrific attack that his body had, you know, nobody been able to recover the body for five days while the Germans uh, took advantage of the, of, of, of the poor British tactics. And, um, so that was terrible news. His father left two pounds and a few pennies, which were sent back to Nellie, Helen, who was uh, Matt's wife, Matt's mum. Uh, she was, at this time, only about 20, you know, uh, or, you know, quite, quite yeah, very, very young. She got married at 17. So she, no, she was a bit older than that. She was in her, her, her early 20s. Um, but yeah, she got married at 17 and, and now she was a widow. 
and uh, of course the the social security wasn't as it was i mean uh, as in more trivial emergencies today the government is is helping so there was there was some little pension but uh, uh, she had to carry on working she got married again to another minor a chap called harry Matthew, and matt you know wasn't sure about you know he'd been the man of the family even though he was only about eight or nine he, he was accustomed to being the man of the family anyway he, the family was uh whittled down yet again in 1917 i think it was when uh, uncle tommy died so matt had lost his father his two uncles and of course the the widows were on their own now that was three widows all in the same village um so yeah matt's uh childhood he never complained about it later but i mean that's that that that's traumatic even by the standards of the time when every household was being having the, the heart and soul ripped out of it at that time the male heart and soul of it uh, so he, he wasn't alone but uh, he was left with really only one male influence in his life, which was his mom's dad, Jimmy Greer, who um, was a bit of a bit of a lad. <laughs> and uh, it's funny. Um, uh, I learned through uh, Eamon Dunphy's very good book about Matt's life, a strange kind of glory. I learned through that 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 was where Matt developed his great love of the Ranyanesque roguish characters that later several of them became his friends you know when he when he was uh, a success and the toast of manchester in terms of sir matt we've talked there about his upbringing in terms mm. of him getting involved in football when did that happen oh yeah well that was um that was again a long and roundabout story but i'll, I'll try and keep it as brief as possible but he matt was a very bright boy at school and when he was 12 he went to, his mum wanted him to go to, a, they, were, they, they were Catholics, they weren't um, sectarian Catholics, they were, you know, they, but they, his mum wanted him to have a Catholic education, but when he got to the, and he went to a school in Bothwell, but when he got to the age of 12, the, his reputation as a good pupil and as a bright lad was such that the headmaster of a very fine educationist in Lanarkshire at the time, called Bennett, um, suggested he should go to school in Motherwell. That was three miles from the fam from Orbiston, at least just over three miles. Um, but the, the, the when the teacher told uh, Nellie, you know, Matt's mom, that, um, that, that, that he, he felt that Matt had the potential to become a schoolmaster, which, of course, you know, rocketed you into the middle class, you know. And, um, and gave you a job for life in those days. And, and so he, he would walk three miles to school and, and, and three miles back, but that was because he was bright. Unfortunately, the plan for him to become a schoolmaster was changed by the changes in the family. The, the widows, uh, two of them had gone to, and other family members had gone to Pittsburgh in the United States. Uh, presumably, I, I would guess to work in steel, steel industry, um, uh, to make a new life, you know, with, with 
by themselves. And Nellie, his, uh, Matt's mom, decided they should all go. She applied for emigration forms for her and Harry Matthew, her second husband, and put Matt's name on the forms. So Matt could have, I suppose, become a school teacher in, 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 in America or something instead of a great football manager, you know. Um, but in the end, he never admitted to this, but I think he kind of wormed his way out of that. He said when he was, when he was 16, he left school, even though he was, you know, tipped to, to, for a, an a career in education. He left school and went and decided to go down the mine. Now, his mom had never wanted to go down the mine. And she said, um, uh, you know, why are you doing this? He said, well, if we're going to America, we're going to need a few bob to get settled. So I'll work down the mine and we can maybe family can put a bit aside for spends, you know, when, when we get over there rent on an apartment i don't know what they expected but um anyway that was that was what it was but i think matt was being crafty he never admitted to this but uh, anyway he went down the mines but that meant he was able to continue his football career which by now was blossoming in his teens he was playing when he was about about this time he was playing for uh, a team called alpine villa and they were an under 18 team and at that time, and probably still now, there was an under-18 Scottish Cup. And Alpine Villa won the Scottish FA Cup for under-18s. So, of course, the scouts for big, bigger clubs uh, were, you know, flocking around. And Matt had caught the eye of Denny Hibbs, um, you know, who were one of the best junior sides in the country. A bit of money in, in the boot, you know. And uh, so... I think Matt's ambition to become a professional footballer, bear in mind that he'd grown up in the village of, uh, of Bells, in the village of Orbiston near Bells Hill, with, he quite literally used to lay out the kit for Alex James, who was at that time one of the best footballers in the world. But he grew up in that area. So did Huey Gallagher. Those were probably two of the top 10 players in the world. It was like living... <coughs> It was like growing up in a village with Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. It was an incredible, uh, you know, bear in mind that Scotland, if there had been FIFA rankings in those days, Scotland would probably be on top a lot of the time because it could handle England. Oh, those were happy days. Oh, bring them back. Um, and of course, England could batter anybody else. Uh, it was before the East European and Central European boom had started. And so basically, if you, if you were better than England, you were the, probably the best in the world. And Scotland were usually, more often than not, better than England. So, you know, this was a, a surreal. I mean, we, we said before, we talked about he's losing his dad and his uncles. But at the same time as a football education, it couldn't have got better. And um, he'd seen James and Gallagher go south to England and become superstars, local heroes at, at, at least. And um, I think he wormed his way out of the trip to America. But as I say, he never admitted it. Eventually, um, he got the offer from Denny Hibbs very quickly after that. 
because Denny Hibbs had a, a, a very strong link with Man City, uh, mainly through Jimmy McMullen, who was Scotland captain, brilliant midfield player, and uh, had played for Denny Hibbs, was now, you know, the star at Man City. And so uh, Denny Hibbs, where would they send this boy? Uh, but Man City went for a trial at Man City at the age of 18, uh, was judged successful and offered a contract, which he took. And that was how, how he got into football. Meanwhile, he'd managed to persuade his mom and Harry Mathy uh, to, to postpone the trip to America. So that question was really never asked again. And I think Nelly um, and Harry Mathy felt, listen, the boy's got a chance of a really good career as a footballer now. Um, and in England, the money was, was better. I think it would be a bit selfish of us to go, go to America. And they'd gone off the idea a bit anyway. So the, the question was never really asked again. And, uh, and Nellie and Harry just sort of became proud of Matt, really, in, in the same way as the James and Gallagher families had been proud of, of their own export. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't do well at first. He didn't like Manchester. Although you would think, well, coming from an industrial background himself, he'd have fitted in nicely. But it was, there were too many people. It was a di different way. It was really a very different way of life, life from Lanarkshire, where although it was heavy industry, it was little communities. And, and to be in this large, rather daunting, smoky city was, was something he didn't like at first. And, and, and he made several attempts to, to, to clamber on the first available one-way ticket to train to get back to back to Bells Hill he tried that more than once um, he'd already met um, uh, Jean Menzies or Mingus um, who was meant to be who, who was later to become his wife and he wrote to her I don't think I've got a future in football I want to come home and uh, in fact he, one time he packed his bags but he was lucky that he was sharing digs in Manchester in uh, Moss Side, right next to the old ground at Main Road. And uh, uh, there was a, a footballer called McCloy, who, who, uh, who was from Lanarkshire, and said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm going home, uh, I can't, can't do this. And he sat up all night um, with him, with Matt, and by, at the end of the, well, by, by the time the cock had crowed, uh, Matt had put his, taken his clothes out of his bag and put them in the drawer and he decided to give it another go but it was a hard hard road and and it was it was extraordinary how he um, how he finally made it he he, he was about uh, 20 and 20, uh, early 20s and despairing and they used to have things called they tried him the, the manager was a Scot called Peter Hodge really wanted him to succeed and and loved his nice technical style of play but uh oh i tried him outside right inside left center forward i think once and he tried him in just about every position and he'd show glimmers and then he'd, he'd have one good game and then four stinkers and hodge was on the in fact, he tried to sell him to Manchester United, but he wanted 150 quid for Matt. 
And Man United's uh, scout at that time, a man called Louis Rocca, famous man in the history of Man United, said £150. Man United haven't got 150 shillings. That was £7.50 in old money. Man United couldn't afford that. He said, no, I said, we'd love to sign Matt, but uh, we, haven't, we haven't a beam. You know, unless it's a free transfer, there's nothing we can do. They said, no. Anyway, they, one day there was this trial match. They used to have trial matches on a Wednesday afternoon. Now, these were, they had various functions. You know, if injured players coming back could get, you know, 45 minutes in them or, a, or a, you know, a full game. Uh, and a, but they were called trial matches because people whose parents had been banging on, my boys as good as your centre forward, they'd get trials. Or if they'd been spotted, they'd get... And, and the manager, uh, Hodge, would be sitting up in the stand and just keeping an eye on it. And, yeah, that one's all right. And, and that's, that's the way it went. Uh, there was no crowd apart from the manager and a few parents, basically. And one day, a trialist, a right half, a right, you know, right side midfield, right center, right central midfield, uh, a right half hadn't turned up. He'd been uh, desperate for a trial, but for some reason he didn't turn up. So the call went out to Matt, come to the ground and bring your boots. So he came to the ground, brought his boots, and somebody says, you're playing in the trial this afternoon, you're right half. So... Um, you know, that's, that's where you'll play. He'd never played right half in his life before. Never. There's one position he'd never played. But if fair enough. He's a professional. Boots on, strip on, boom. He's brilliant. Now, he'd been very good in training. That's why Hodge had kept him for a few years, because he was brilliant in training. But in matches, he just wasn't the same. He wasn't the quickest. Technically, no problem. But he wasn't the quickest. But in this game... Playing a little bit further back, sort of deep midfield. Now, if you were playing 4-2-3-1, the wing halves would be the two. So uh, playing in that slightly deeper role with the ball coming to him and the whole pitch his to see, it was perfect. He had a brilliant game and he was, you know, everybody knew it. And he was just hoping Hodge was up in the stand that day. And he was. And he came over and he said, brilliant. What a game you had. Absolutely fantastic. You're going to play for the reserves next week at right half. I think we've found a good role for you. He plays for the reserves at right half. And the week after that, the first team right half gets injured. So Matt gets pr promoted. And the, the guy got injured and never got his place back. Never ever had to get had to be transferred because Matt was an absolute permanent fixture playing wing half using his passing ability he was very good at hitting the diagonals with his left foot he would he would come in from the right side and hit great balls for the winger you know or or as it would be now probably overlapping fullback and um that was that was one of his favorite ploys and uh, he became a decent player. I mean, if he was, if Man City were playing uh, Arsenal or something, he'd be up against Alex James. And, and Alex James would always say, oh, you're, you're not bad, but 
you were a better kit man, you know, and there'd, there'd be a bit of banter between them. And um, uh, so he was actually playing in the same league as James and Gallagher, these great stars. So it, it must have been terrific back at uh, Orbiston on Bells Hill, you know, where the, <clears throat> you know, they've got, they've got all these local boys playing for the big clubs in England. Um, and that was, that was it, really. He never looked back after that and ended up as uh, captain of Liverpool uh, because he, uh, City signed a star player, Northern Irishman called Peter Doherty, who was a fantastic player, one of the best players in Britain. And Matt, he'd been suffering a few injuries and he felt that, that his place was no longer secure. He asked for a transfer and he went to Liverpool where he became the captain. And, and was very, very happy, very happy indeed. And, uh, and that was that for the rest of his career because um, he was in his early 30s, captain of Liverpool, really popular player, thoroughly respected throughout the league, uh, and the Second World War broke out. So it, all of his development had taken place, all of his football had taken place between the, between the wars. Uh, and of course, he then had to become... Uh, yeah, then had to become part of the army. You think back now, um, you think about now, and imagine a player was at Manchester City, they win the FA Cup with Manchester City, they then go to Liverpool, they become Liverpool captain. Yeah. Obviously the war breaks out and, and that takes up a long part of his life. But you think to mm. yourself, could you imagine a, a, an FA Cup winning Manchester City player and former captain of Liverpool ever man managing Manchester United now? It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's it is unbelievable. This was one of the things that very much came over while I was researching the book. That until comparatively recently, it was no big deal um, moving. I mean, Man City to Man United might produce a bit of banter, um, but there were no booing or anything like that. And as late as I think it was 1964, I. I but but comparative, you know, not that long ago. Yeah. Uh, Matt actually transferred um, a guy called Phil Chisnell for a big fee, about twenty twenty two thousand pounds, which was a decent fee in those days, uh, from Manchester United to Liverpool. Uh, Bill uh, Bill Shankly bought him, uh, and because uh, uh, Shankly and Busby were great chums, and. Um, Shankly bought Phil Chisnell from Man United. The, as the luck would have it, the fixture list um, dictated that Liverpool would be away to Man United about two weeks later. Shankly put, didn't have any compunctions about putting Chisnell in the team, and he got a standing, he got a, a you know a warm welcome of applause back to Old Trafford. So it, it just it was much, much later when it became a, a big deal, when well, long after that, when Matt had become a, a director or a president of, of Manchester United, suddenly this huge rivalry started. Um, probably the biggest rivalry in English football, the nearest you would get to Rangers Celtic. Absolutely, and, and we talked there about his playing career. He goes into management. I mean, how does he get to Manchester United? How does how does that oh, come yeah. about? Because when you're well, playing for teams like Man City and Liverpool, especially being captain at yeah. Liverpool, normally if you're a captain at Liverpool, they try and keep you in-house. Well, you remember I told you about the uh, the lad called Louis Rocca, who was yeah. the scout and general factotum for Manchester United. 
Louis Rocker kept in touch with Busby, certainly kept in touch with what he was doing. And uh, Busby had a, had a, a pretty good war, actually, uh, second, in the Second World War, because he was, had been spotted as officer material, really, by the higher echelons of football. And uh, Stanley Rouse, later to become the head of the FA and the head of FIFA, um, had actually appointed him player manager or player come leader, basically, of an army team of top players, you know, Tommy Lawton, Tom Finney, uh, Stanley Matthews, all these top players would travel around the theatres of war, you know, the, uh, uh, towards, well, all through the war, really. But uh, they played in Italy and Egypt and places like that, and Greece, entertaining the troops, uh, keeping up morale, uh, doing a bit of coaching, and generally doing their bit for the, for the effort. But it was a, quite a cushy war. You, you generally arrived at times where there wasn't too much action going on, although you, the sound of the gunfire and artillery in the, in the distance would be you know, not unusual at all. But uh, it was a relatively, um, a relatively cushy war. Um, and towards the end of it, when he was wondering what to do, he'd been in touch with Liverpool, they'd said, we'd like you to be the assistant to the manager, whose name was George Kay, and, and Busby loved George Kay. And uh, he said, well, really, I, I don't think I'm going to be, I, I won't be able to play uh, when I come back because I'll be too old. I think I'd rather be a manager and learn my trade, actually, as the, the main man. And they said, Liverpool said, well, you know, George won't be there forever. Uh, but that didn't appeal to him, sort of, uh, you know, waiting for, you know, George to get sacked because uh, he, he had a huge respect for George Kay. And uh, as indeed did everybody, he was a very good manager, Kay. And um, so just at this time, he gets a letter from Louis Rocca. Uh, Hello, my old pal. Um, when, you, when you get back to Civvy Street, come and see me because uh, there's a job for you at Manchester United. And he worked out, uh, I don't know how, but he, he worked out that they're not going to be calling me if, uh, if it's not the, the manager's job. Uh, bear in mind, a man United was not quite as big a club as City. Um, it, it wasn't really a very big club at all. It was a yo-yo club, you know. Bottom of the first division, top of the second, blah, blah, blah. Um, but he thought it would be great. He talked to his wife and, the, you know, a few footballers had gone straight into, into management at, a, at the top level, done well. Jimmy Seed was one of them at Charlton. And uh, he, uh, uh, he, he said, yeah, let's give it a go because it means we can stay in the northwest of England, you know, which is an area they loved and, and uh, where they'd actually had two children born. So, you know, it was perfect. Uh, not to have to go to say somewhere like Southampton or Newcastle where they'd have to sink new routes. So, um, oh, there was also rumors about Air United as well. Uh, yeah, but uh, they weren't quite true. Matt strung them along, strung the daily record along a wee bit about that because there was a lot of speculation about Air United, but I don't think, I don't think I think he was too settled in the northwest of England. Anyway, uh, he uh, went for his interview with um, 
James Gibson, the chairman of Manchester United, in a cold storage depot in uh, near, near uh, one mile from Old Trafford, well, what used to be Old Trafford football ground because it had been bombed. It was close to, I don't know if you've been to Old Trafford or, or yeah. anybody listening, as uh, it's very close to that uh, Trafford Park industrial area and Salford docks. And obviously the Luftwaffe considered that prime target. And several times Old Trafford was bombed and burnt, the main stand burned down and all that. It wasn't, uh, wasn't usable. Um, and and the, there were no offices. So he went to uh, Mr. Gibson's cold storage depot Hadfield, 14 Hadfield Street. And uh, Mr. Gibson, Busby said, um, what I'd really like to do is build our own players from within our our resources, not spend a lot of money. And Gibson, who with Rocca had been working on youth development a lot, even in the 30s, um, and I actually built a good squad of players, although they hadn't been tested, obviously, because there'd been no football for six years, five years. And uh, uh, this was what Busby said was music to the chairman's ears, because that was what they wanted all along. They wanted to do this. They'd already started a, a youth section. And uh, so they thought, yeah, this is absolutely perfect. And they said, well, that's, that's absolutely brilliant. We're, we're definitely singing from the same hymn sheet and uh, we'd be very pleased to offer you a three-year contract. And uh, Matt said, I'll need five. So the chairman said, yeah, okay, five. And we gave him a five-year contract and uh, he was a success, right? For, he was actually still in uniform when he signed, still in khaki. And um, he signed for Manchester United and eventually... Um, he'd made a very, very good decision. He'd spotted, while on his travels with the team, uh, the brilliant coaching uh, of Jimmy Murphy. And he told, he told Jimmy Murphy out in Italy, they became friends after Busby had been impressed with the coach, his coaching, you know, with the army team and all that. And he said, uh, he knew Jimmy Murphy, could play for West Brom. He got the bruises to prove it. Murphy was, Murphy was a bit of a scuffler. He's a decent player, but a scuffler. And... Uh, uh, it said, you know, Jimmy, I'll call for you. I will get a managing job, one management job one day. And it turned out to be in Manchester. And uh, so eventually Jimmy Murphy was demobbed and these two almost indivisible managers, like Clough and Taylor, they were, you know, Murphy and Busby. And um, the partnership came together. And because the club had worked on getting together a good collection of young players the soldiers who came back from the army you know to put change their khaki uniforms for the red shirt of manchester united were good players so much so that they finished second in the league in in um busby's first season as a manager i mean so although his coaching has obviously been good and his team selection has obviously been good the club had, you know, put his money where its mouth is and had really worked hard on youth development before he came. And he, of course, decided to bump that up and make it better and better and better until eventually uh, the Busby Babes in, um, who perished in 1958 were produced. But they, they finished second, I think, just about every season until 1948, 
when they won the FA Cup in a great final, beating Blackpool 4-2. It was, I think it was considered the best final since they went to Wembley in 1923. And uh, winning the cup then was probably better in terms of what the fans wanted. Because probably winning the FA Cup was probably bigger than winning the league. <laughs> Amazing though it may seem. Um, and that remained the case right up to about the 1950s. Uh, the, sorry, the mid-1950s. Um, so, yeah, um, after winning the Cup, they were, they were away. And eventually, three years later, they won the league. And, and then they started, the, then the really good generation that Murphy and Busby at school came through, the Duncan Edwardses, the Mark Jones, the Eddie Coleman. I mean, what a, what a bunch of players they were. And, and that was the Busby Babes. And they started to just dominate English football in a way that uh, that probably nobody really had up till then. Maybe Arsenal and Herbert Chapman uh, and Villa in the early days, but but you know it, it was a, it was a a bit like the development of Liverpool under Shankly and Paisley. You know they they became the the, the team that everybody feared and, and and dreamed of beating, but but often didn't. The player I really want to ask you about, obviously there's there's plenty of good players there. We talked about you could have yeah. Jones, Blanche Flower, Scanlon, Pegg. Yes, Blanche Flower as well. Yeah. I mean, Scanlon and Pegg, two England outside lefts in the same squad. Unbelievable. I mean, it, 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 absolutely unbelievable. And, and they were battling for... Um, for possession. Uh, uh, I mean, Scanlon was in possession when they went to Munich. Um, but it, it was Peg who died, although Scanlon was injured. The player I really want to ask you about, who, as yeah. we know, sadly passed away, of course, Duncan Edwards, widely yes. regarded as the greatest Manchester United player of all time. Mm. Um, mm. Just how good was Duncan Edwards? Well, I, I haven't, you know, I've, I've got a little bit of eyewitness um, from Brian Glanville, who, you know, you and, and, and everybody... Uh, listening to this, will will know is one of the best sports right, uh, best football writers in Britain. Yeah. Um, slowed down a bit now, but uh, you know he must have been at the top for sixty years, you know. And uh, Glanville saw a bit of Edwards. He must have been quite young, and he said, "Yes, yes, he was good, but he relied a lot on his power. He he, he had, you know, the he was the first." Player to have legs like tree trunks, you know. He was that. Uh, he was that that way. Uh, he wasn't six feet tall, but he was built like the proverbial outhouse. You know, he really, really was a solid, solid uh, boy. And he, you know, was a competitor. He, he didn't mind putting himself about. Um, and and Glanville felt that a lot of his reputation was due to this physical prowess. He was also quick, but Everybody else said, as you said in your introduction to this section, um, that he, he, he was potentially the greatest ever seen. Bobby Charlton said he was the only footballer who made him feel inferior. He said if I was on, uh, he could be on a pitch with anybody and he'd feel he could hold his own. But Duncan made him go, wow. And a lot of people said that. Um, Wilf McGuinness, who... Thank God is still around, 
still a part of the Old Trafford furniture, became the manager after Busby, as you'll know. Um, Wilf uh, certainly goes along with all the hype. And uh, um, I've, see, I've seen a little bit of uh, video of Duncan Edwards. And I can only say that um, he, he had unbelievable technique. He could, there's one shot from a European match, I remember, which I, I found on Pathé News. And he hit a ball of 60 yards from the sort of right half position to out to, and it landed on the outside left toe. That would, could have been Scanlon, could have been Peg. And it just landed on the boy's toe. And uh, he's a goal scorer. I'll tell you what, if, uh, I don't know if you've done this, but I advise you to do it as soon as, uh, as soon as we have a bit of spare time. Google Duncan Edwards goal Berlin for Germ uh, West Germany v uh, sorry Germany v England Berlin and you'll see this goal Duncan Edwards is 19 at the time and do you remember the original Ronaldo yes. remember him uh, where the, he had this sort of spell where he just used to score these unbelievable goals they were like something out of a, a comic strip they were they were unreal he would sort of stroll back to the center circle pick the ball up and then seem to say i think i'll beat the whole team today and then he'd do exactly that run through the whole team round the goalkeeper and tap it in the net and he was doing that he seemed to be doing that every week well what duncan edwards did and bear in mind this is against the world champions germany he goes back picks up the ball, about three of them come in and think, cheeky little bugger. And they all try to chop him. He, one bounces off him, one misses, because he was quick, you know, he was already in his stride. I don't know what happened to the other one. He then beats another man. And instead of going round the goalkeeper, he just pings it without breaking stride from 22 yards, 25 yards possibly. He just pings it. And I promise you, the ball has hit the stanchion, spun out of the net before the goalie hits the ground. I mean, it's phenomenal. And he makes it look so easy. That's a 19-year-old boy against the champions of the world. So... I think he, uh, I'm sort of in the majority camp that uh, this could have been. And of course, a lot of English people speculate about what had he lived uh, in 1958, had he not been injured in 1958, what would have been the effect on the England team that won the World Cup? Bear in mind, he would have been only 29 and at his peak when England won the World Cup in 1966. Uh, would Bobby Moore have been the captain? Or would, or would it have been Duncan Edwards? Would Bobby Moore maybe still have been the captain, but with Duncan Edwards slotting in beside him? What might England have done better in the 58 and 62 World Cups uh, with, with Duncan Edwards in the team? Um, you know, these would he have been, in a sense, might he have had the Maradona, the effect that Maradona had on Argentina, might he have had that, a similar effect on England? 
all of that's probably stretching it a bit far. But uh, it's certainly um, it's certainly sensible to se speculate how much England as well as Manchester United lost in the crash at Munich because uh, Roger Byrne, the left back and captain of the, that team who was killed, um, is another one who was England through and through. You know, England quality, no problem at all. And there were others coming through. Eddie Coleman certainly would have been. Um, an international candidate, you know, without a shadow of doubt. And of course, there were the two wingers, Peg and Scanlon. Probably Peg would have lasted the pace better because he was because um, he was a more calm, more thoughtful player. But uh, you know, it, the, the, what 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 that team could have achieved um, individually and and collectively was well. It, it, I'm afraid, literally, we can only speculate about. In terms of the Busby Babes, as we know, as we've talked about, Sir Matt was not shy about giving young players an opportunity. And no. that team, one of the best teams in English football history. Yeah, they yes. won league titles, won the FA Cup. And leading up to the, the, the horrible, sad, tragic events yes. in Munich, they were really on the up. And obviously we know Celtic were the first British team to win the European Cup. But mm. the, the widespread opinion is if, if that incident in Munich didn't happen, Manchester United would have been? I think that's, I think that's fair to speculate because uh, Real Madrid, who, you know, as everybody knows, dominated the European Cup from its inception uh, and were still dominant in 58, still better than United, I would say, in 58. Um, uh, I, they were on the way down. I mean, the players were not getting any younger. The greats, the Stefano, Hento, Pushkas, Santa Maria, all these. Um, they weren't getting any younger. They did manage, you know, a last hurrah at Hamden Park in 1960, which was two years after Munich. But that was, an, uh, and although it was a magnificent performance, it, it wasn't as great a team as it had been earlier. The 7-3 victory over Eintracht Frankfurt, well, one of the most famous European Cup finals ever, but, and, and, and terrific, but, but the glamour of that match shouldn't blind us to the fact that the team was really over the hill, whereas Manchester United were still coming to their peak. So it, it's not stupid to speculate that at some stage between 1958 and 1960, that the rise of Manchester United would have coincided with the dip in the aging of Real Madrid and that Manchester United would, have, would eventually prevail over their, the team that had become their greatest rivals and, and was after uh, Munich uh, to become their greatest friends. Manchester United and Real Madrid played several friendly matches um, to help Manchester United raise money, all the proceeds apart from expenses, went to Man United's rebuilding fund after Munich because they were underinsured when they crashed, quite apart from everything else. In terms of the, the tragic events at Munich, some people also um, forget that um, Sir Matt Busby was also appointed the Scotland manager just before yes. the Munich air disaster and gave That's his right. to Dennis Law. That's right, 18-year-old uh, Dennis Law of Huddersfield yes. um, 
And uh, by the way, Dennis would have been, wouldn't have been a striker. He scored three 0 win over Wales. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but Dennis never considered himself a striker. You know, I know he's considered one of the greatest strikers ever to play in British football, and possibly up there with the best in Europe. And yet he considered himself a box-to-box midfielder like Brian Robson or, uh, I don't know, who would the Scottish equivalent be? Dave Mackay, you know? Uh, um, but anyway, that's, that's, that's by the way. Yes, he did indeed. He had two matches in charge of, of Scotland and he was really looking forward in 1958 to taking Scotland to the World Cup, uh, which was held in Sweden. And it was great because his assistant, Jimmy Murphy, who we spoke about earlier, was manager of Wales. So it could have been Busby against his own <laughs> assistant if Scotland had met Wales at some stage in the tournament. Um, plus, of course, all his boys, Duncan Edwards, you know, maybe Eddie Coleman, if he first forced his way to the team, Roger Byrne, all the, those lads. Uh, you know, he would have had that. It would, I mean, it would have been a great World Cup for, for Matt if, it, uh, if he'd not been in hospital. And, um, well, he was, he was out of hospital by the time the World Cup started, but he, he only just, only a, a couple of weeks, or a few weeks. But, uh, yes, I mean, the world was, was at Matt's feet at that time, you know, World Cups, European Cups. It was all there in front of him and him and his boys, you know. They were like a second, uh, second family to him, you know. And, uh, and, but uh, unfortunately, fate was to decree otherwise. In terms of Munich itself, a, a really traumatic event, as we've talked about, the underinsured mm-hmm. nature, the tragic yeah. of, of so many, including Duncan yeah. Edwards and others. Yeah. When that happens, we know about Sir Matt really going through a, a tough, tough time as well, really struggling yeah. and fighting for his life, receiving the last rights, for example. Just how, t- again, it's a, it's a simplistic question in a way, just how tough and challenging was that for not just Sir Matt and the players, but the whole Manchester United cause? Yeah, well, st- to start with Matt, uh, I mean, it couldn't have been worse. I mean, here's this uh, devout Christian, which he, he was, um, admitting many years later that he didn't care whether he lived or died because of guilt, the mixture of grief and guilt. Um, grief at knowing or suspecting at first because they didn't tell him uh suspecting that the boys had died um or 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 wouldn't play again and 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 his guilt at having you know come on do it for me you know let's let's win the european cup um so also he knew that he'd taken them into europe against the wishes of some big wigs in, in English football. Um, as you well know, Hibs were the first British team to take part in the, in the European Cup because yep. uh, Chelsea, who were invited the same year, were forbidden to come. And it was Matt, it was Matt who, who broke that sort of... Uh, excuse me a second. Uh, um, excuse me a second, yeah. Uh, it was Matt who broke that, you know, by uh, by taking Manchester United in with the help of Stanley Rouse, his old friend. Oh, sorry about this, Callum. Are you recording? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there was, so there was, you know, a, a huge amount of this 
uh, guilt, which is normal in, in these situations when you say, you know, why did I survive and they died? And um, I think football, Manchester United and Matt Busby in general, owe a great deal uh, to Jean, who of course by then was, was Matt's wife and the mother of their two children. Uh, because Jean, whether she did this as a deliberate psychological ploy or, or not, I don't know. But what she did was convince him that what he had to do was not give up like this. You know, not say things like, I hate the very thought of football. I can't bear to, to think about football after what's happened. That his duty and it, it, his, the only way he could sort of make um, things better for those who died, for those that they left behind, and for Manchester United as a whole, was to rebuild, no matter how long it took, and to make that his life's mission. Eventually that got through to him. And from that moment that he, instead of, you know, just wishing, you know, that God would take him, uh, he, he then had a, a passion in life again, a, a passion in life as opposed to a religious faith. And uh, that basically saved his career uh, and, and, and gave him, was to lead to his having a fulfilled life, uh, well, more than fulfilled life. Um, and uh, so, uh, uh, you know, I think, uh, while it's quite right that there's a statue of Matt Busby outside uh, Old Trafford, um, maybe there should be a, one of Jean as well. <laughs> Describe the Munich rebuild for me because we're all aware that the likes of Harry Gregg, Bobby Charlton, yeah. Bill Folk survived, but at that stage recruitment was obviously going to have to be mm. a very big aspect. You think of the likes of Herd, uh, Quixel, Law, and obviously we all know Georgie Best. Yeah, yeah. Well, that George Best was um, one of the benefits, and Bobby Charlton were one of the benefit. Were two of the great benefits. Oh, God Almighty! Sorry about that. There we go. Well, two of the greatest uh, uh, were uh, two of the greatest contributors to the rebuilding of Manchester United. Um, were homegrown products of uh, of of Matt's own own youth policy, uh, Bobby Charlton, who you've already mentioned, he was already in the team, and George Best. You know, two players who went on to become uh, Ballon d'Or winners, along with Dennis Law. Can you imagine that three from the same club, Ballon d'Or winners within the period of five years, something like that. Amazing. And um, yeah, although he had to spend money for law and for Paddy Crerand and all the other parts of the rebuilding job. Um, but first of all, it was just a case of make do and men. They bought uh, uh, Stan Crowther, who played for Aston Villa against them in the cup the previous season. But uh, he didn't he didn't really fit in at Old Trafford. Ernie Taylor, uh, um, a very crafty inside forward coming to the, well, the end of his career. He'd been at Blackpool, 
supplying slide rule passes for Stanley Matthews. He came for a bit and did well. And they were lent a few players, uh, um, you know, who did, who, who did pretty well, particularly uh, uh, one from, from, from Bishop Auckland, the great amateur club up in uh, the northeast of England. Slowly, they rebuilt, and by although, as we say, that George Best came from within United's own scouting system uh, through Bob Bishop, the um, the scout in Northern Ireland, who could hardly contain his excitement. And of course, as soon as Matt and uh, Jimmy Murphy saw him, uh, they they were the same. And and Jimmy Murphy said to, to Matt, uh, he said, "We're not going to coach this boy. You know, we, we just." With his gape in admiration. And um, he actually, George Best, came over with a lad called Eric McMordy, who, who, who later became a Northern Ireland international too, um, uh, and played well for Middlesbrough as well. And uh, George and Eric were so home, homesick that they, they went back to Belfast uh, the next day. By They jumped on a ship at Liverpool. And, um, but Matt and Matt was never going to let George away for good and rang his dad and they decided to give it another go and, and everything was fine. And, uh, well, the let rest is a perhaps too brief but cherished part of Manchester United history. How, how George t touched Manchester United with probably more stardust than any other player, even Charlton and Law. In terms of the... The rebuild at United. How how did Sir Matt manage George Best? Because we all know how big a character he was. And mm -hmm. again, we've mentioned those players: Law, Charlton, Best. Um, there's just so many players we can mention that mm. were influential in, in winning that European Cup mm. against Benfica. Yeah. Well, it's it's. I think you've got to look at two different distinct periods before the the 1968 and Benfica, the, the, the European Cup win that you're referring to, 10 years after Munich. Before then, there weren't really too many problems with George. In fact, anything but. The boy was El Beatle, you know, all the silly journalistic titles. Um, he was part of the, the Beatle. He genuinely was up there with the Beatles in terms of fame and... Uh, you know, if, if, if he appeared somewhere, girls would scream the same way as they would have for the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. So, and yeah, he lived a quite a normal life. He, he walked through Manchester, you know, and sometimes you'd see him, you know, sometimes in a pub, sometimes not. And, um, but no, the, the, in George's youth, there wasn't really too, too much of a problem. It was after that where Matt, I wouldn't say he lost his grip, after 68, he relaxed his grip and he became far too indulgent of those who had realized his dream. And I think if Matt were here now, he'd probably sort of say, well, maybe you know, he'd grudgingly admit that. Um, he was, before then, he, he had things under control. You know, people like, like you know, big characters like Clarendon and even George, you know, they would, uh, they certainly wouldn't do anything naughty while the boss was looking. So um, it was, uh, it, I, Matt, Matt managed, things were, things were really, really good. There were no problems 
no, no serious problems, I think, on the build-up uh, to Wembley. And I think maybe if there had been, they, they wouldn't have won at Wembley that, that time. Um, yes, home advantage was, was helpful. Um, but, uh, you know, they had beaten Real Madrid to get there. So they were, you know, far and away favourites. And, uh, and best turns on, you know, yet another masterclass um, in, in the final. Although, actually, the other winger was better, Johnny Aston. He, he was the man of the match in, in that game. So, um, yeah, it was, it was glorious vindication. And, and the players, you know, they'd never talked about Munich in that 10 years. You'd never, you probably never heard the word Munich mentioned in a conversation. Uh, Alex Stepney told me that, the goalkeeper. And yet, when the final whistle went on the victory, 4-1 victory after extra time, all of the players went to Bill Fuchs, Bobby Charlton, and Matt. This, they knew what it meant. So nobody was ever in any, every, any doubt, even though um, it was never talked about. And funnily enough, um, Matt's son, uh, Sandy Busby, now no longer with us, sadly, uh, uh, like his sister, Sheena. Um, Sandy Busby did say once that uh, Matt never discussed it in the family either. Never. And... I think the only person in the, in, in the world that he would have discussed it with, apart from maybe, maybe his mum, maybe, uh, would have been um, um, Jean, his wife, the one who brought him through it. In terms of the European Cup victory, was it always the case that when Matt won that European Cup, got that vindication mm. for the terrible events of Munich that retirement mm. was automatically now on his mind? Definitely. Uh, and it's no coincidence that it was only a, a year later that he made his first unsuccessful attempt to retire. He devised... He didn't want to let go completely. After all, he was only 60. But he got... He devised this plan. He realised, I think that there were coaches coming up, modern coaches. Um, Don Reavy was obviously one, and of course he would have known him well because he, he was a Manchester City man before going to Leeds. And he knew that there, were these, there was this new wave of hands-on coaches um, that might leave him behind. But he didn't want to take his hands off the wheel completely. And so he devised this plan whereby Wilf McGuinness, still in his 20s, 29, had had his career ruined um, early, in his early, in his early to mid 20s by injury, knee injury. But he'd made such an impact on coaching Wilf that he was in, uh, on Alf Ramsey's bench when England won the World Cup in 66. So this, and that was only three years earlier. So Wilf was, a, you know, he was not one that you'd have wanted to go elsewhere. He was looked like one of the brightest young coaches in the country. So Matt's idea was that he would run the team, Wilf would run the team, 
but Matt would do the overall stuff, including the press. And this, of course, was where it fell down because the, the, the reporters would ring up on a Friday and say to Wilf, what's the team for tomorrow, Wilf? And, and he'd say, well, you better ask uh, Matt because he's in charge of dealing with the media. And the, so the lads would ring Matt and say, Matt, what's the team for tomorrow? He'd say, well, you better ask Wilf because he picks the team. So it just, yeah, I hadn't thought it through well enough. I mean, when you, when you think about it, it was, it was quite good. It was quite a good idea. I mean, what did Liverpool, when Liverpool built their successful dynasty, it was built on the boot room culture, promoting from within. And that really was what Matt was trying to do. We don't want Wilf going to Wolves or somewhere and being successful there. We want, he knows the club. He knows he bleeds Man United. Let's have him here. So to an extent, it did make sense. Um, but also, the Wilf didn't go in and have a clear out of players. It wasn't until about three managers later when Tommy Doherty came that... that you know, basically the manager behaved like a right bastard and didn't care what Matt said. And that, and that was the best thing that could have happened to Manchester United. I mean, Doherty was brutal. You just asked Dennis Law about that. And, uh, um, but it was the right thing for the club, what Tommy Doherty did. And with Matt there as a director, he was still called the boss. Um, I mean, two managers on, he was, still be, he was still called the boss. The players would say, well, I'm not sure about that. I'm going to go and ask the boss about that. And they didn't mean uh, Dave Sexton or Frank O'Farrell, or let alone Wilf. They meant they'd go to Matt's office, which he'd kept on the first floor at Old Trafford, and, uh, and ask the true boss, which was Matt. So he didn't hand, looking back on it, he didn't hand, handle the handover very well. You could say, well, handovers don't go easily. Look at, ask Unai Emery at Arsenal. Ask um, David Moyes and Louis van Gaal and Jose Mourinho at, at Old Trafford. You know, handovers are not easy. And that's, uh, you know, I've got a lot, bit of sympathy of that. Matt thought it would be a, a good system in that he could gradually hand over to Wilf, but it didn't turn out that way. Wilf got the sack after a reasonable 18 months. He got, I think, three semifinals. They didn't collapse. But the players weren't, weren't with him. I mean, after all, he'd been a good player. And these guys were great players. And he was saying to them, no, no, you do it that way. And uh, so there was a bit of, and you know what it's like players, when players are coming to the end of their careers, they can be nasty enemies, you know, they can be quite bitchy, you know. So um, that was it. And uh, they decided to, to get a, a ready-made manager with uh, Franco Farrell, who'd been doing really well with Leicester, who got them pr promoted, they, they brought him in. Uh, that didn't work either, because Matt was still doing the transfers, you know? And so Frank, Frank, Frank didn't feel that he had complete control there, although he was alone with the players on the, on the training field. The, the players knew that Matt was doing the, doing the deals with the, um, with the players that were coming in. I mean, <laughs> Ian Ewer told me, you know, Ian Ewer, the ex-Dundee in Scotland, sent a half, very good 
terrific player in my opinion, but uh, and a great lad to this day. But he said, he told me a very funny story about, well, it wasn't funny at the time, about uh, when you, because at Man United, you know, they don't have a high opinion of Ian Ewer. They say, ah, it wasn't, wasn't up to Man United standard and this, that and the other. So there's a reason for that. And the reason for that was that Ian was with Arsenal at the time. The manager was Bertie Mee. And he was playing. He had such pain from his knee that he was playing with pills and injections every week. He only had one knee. And... Uh, and he told me, he says he found out later that the pills they were giving for him for his knee were given to racehorses to get them out on the track. Can you imagine that? Pills, veterinary pills, you're giving to your star centre-half. Anyway, Busby didn't do a medical. They, um, he was just, the, the trainer just uh, flexed Ian's knee and said, yeah, that'll be fine. And so he was never fit. He never played for Man United fit in all the time he was there. But it was Matt making that signing. Matt wasn't the manager, but it was Matt making that signing. And um, all of that can only have eroded the player's confidence in the coach, whoever, or the manager, whoever it might be. Did the club ever try and appoint a, a, another juggernaut of a manager like a Don? Yeah, Don yes, Jock Steen. Yeah, they did, but Jock um, Jock's wife didn't want to go, didn't want to leave Scotland, and so that was that was out. Um, I mean, uh, you know, when he did eventually go to England and joined Leeds, he came back within a few weeks, didn't he? So, um, no, Jock uh, just didn't. Uh, didn't fancy it. And I think that was probably Jock's instinct, telling him that the squad was maybe a bit... They also, there was another factor apart from, from uh, Jock's wife. And that was that Matt insisted that, that um, Jock wasn't to have a clear out of the coaches, that he was to keep the, the coaches who were already at Matt, he didn't want them sacked. So again, he was trying to do the right thing by the coaches, but Jock said, well, no, I think if I come, I'd like to say he's my goalkeeping coach and he's my fitness coach and he's my right-hand man. Uh, so there, was, there were those two reasons, really, but I think the main one was probably that Jock's wife didn't want to leave, uh, didn't want to leave Scotland. We've talked about Matt's upbringing in Lanarkshire, we've talked about his time, obviously, in the Second World War, playing with City, playing with Liverpool, managing United, the tragedy. The Scotland. Scotland. Scotland as well. Don't forget Scotland. We've talked as well about the, the immense successes, rebuilding the club from, from the ashes. Um, yeah. Overall, Paddy, the big question I want to ask you is, in British football history, Herbert Chapman, Arsene Wenger, Sir Alex, Mourinho, Guardiola, there's been great managers in the British game, yeah. John Steen, Bill Shankly, Walter Bill Nicholson. on and on and on and on. But yeah. where would Sir Matt Busby rank? And you, uh, for, uh, you forgot James McPake. <laughs> where would Sir nah, Matt... He's, he's a great manager of the future. You're uh, talking about the ones of the past, yeah. Uh, where would Matt rank? Well, in my opinion at the top, 
And I'll tell you why. Simply because he, you know, when people ask about who was better, Messi or Maradona, and I, I'm one of the sort of, I suppose, few people who saw them both all the way through the peaks of their career. I saw Maradona play for Napoli and Argentina and Barcelona as well. And I've seen Messi from a teenager to what he is now in his 30s. And, uh, and, and I, I, use, I usually say, well, the only way I can separate them is to say that Messi didn't have people trying to break his leg four times a game, which, which Maradona did. Maradona suffered the most hideous treatment. Um, and, and of course, the butcher of Bilbao succeeded. And um, I, I said, I just don't know if Lionel Messi, I mean, thank God he didn't suffer that treatment. Thank God. But I don't know if Lionel Messi could have survived that. And I think the same answer is that the, 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 the tiebreaker, if you like, between all of those great managers would be that nobody arrived at the, uh, at the club in the first instance to find out that they didn't have a stadium or an office because it had been bombed by the, the, the Germans, by the Luftwaffe. Nobody then built a great team only for it to die in an accident in which, in which he was hospitalized for three and a half months himself. And at two stages, as you rightly say, was in, in himself in mortal danger. Who, um, who could then rebuild again to such a degree that he became the first English, um, he, sorry, he led the first English winners of, of the champions of Europe uh, and the second British. Um, I think, and I think also you, you're saying, well, Alex Ferguson actually won more trophies, but there were more trophies available to win. There wasn't a League Cup in Matt's day. There wasn't, you know, a secondary European competition if you didn't get into the European Cup. Um, Matt never failed to get into the semi-finals of, of, of the European Cup, never failed to get to the last four. And, um, but but the, the crucial other factor in compared, because obviously Alex Ferguson is the benchmark. You know, if, if you finish above Alex Ferguson, you're the winner. And Alex Ferguson always had at Manchester United financial power. He broke the British transfer record twice in his first few years and, you know, tried to break it at, on other occasions, mainly for Alan Shearer. And, and um, so he always had muscle, that more muscle than most other clubs in the league. Matt never did. Matt never did because gate receipts, even at times when Man United were one of the best supported clubs, and for most of Matt's time, um, Newcastle, Tottenham, clubs like that would get just as big crowds as United. And also, gate receipts were shared differently. You'd, if After Ferguson had been at United about four or five years, United got 15,000 more crowds than, say, Liverpool or Arsenal, who were still at Ivory at the time. And they were allowed to keep the, the money from all those. So 
they had Manchester United had had more financial muscle almost throughout Alex Ferguson's time. Now that's not to say he didn't go way over what anybody else could have achieved given with the same muscle. Because yes, he did. But for me, Matt did it all. At the time, he, he made Manchester United first among equals. Um, so I would, uh, I would put him as number one. And that's difficult because Herbert Chapman was the inventor of management as we know it. Um, it's just that Sir Matt took that invention. He was the first tracksuit. I mean, Herbert didn't wear a tracksuit. Matt did. He was the first. That phrase, tracksuit manager, was invented for Matt. And uh, so I would say, yep, Busby, Ferguson, um, and Chapman would be, would, be, would be my three, but with Busby at the top. But uh, uh, just one caveat, that if you put Clough and Taylor together, Brian Clough and Peter Taylor together, you have the distillation of genius. Of, of true genius uh, that whereas the others were more the product of long hard work whereas Clough and Taylor together added up to a wizard a sorcerer a, a magician what they could do you know Nottingham Forest Derby County European Cup twice in a row uh, that would be the distillation of genius, but the, those, the, the, the three, uh, with Busby at the top. That's my, that's my entirely biased answer. The last thing I want to say, Paddy, is the book here, as, we, as we've talked about today, Sir Matt, mm. the man who made a football club, um, we've mm -hmm. talked all about him today. It's very detailed. It's an encyclopedia, really, of Matt's life and career. You've got your copy there as well. Snap, snap, yeah. <laughs> yeah, go on. Where can people buy the book? Um, and in terms of the book, we've talked a lot about Matt today, but other than the things we've talked about, there's obviously a lot more in the book. What else can they look forward to? Well, I would, I would say, I, what I particularly enjoy, and it's difficult for me, but um, the bit that I was dreading uh, writing, um, yeah, I knew I would have to do it properly, originally, and in a painstaking and painful way, was the section on Munich, which is quite prolonged. And the nicest thing anybody said, the great, there's a great journalist called Patrick Collins, who, who you will know. And uh, the nicest thing that anybody has said about the book is that, is that Patrick Collins wrote that um, until he read this book, he thought that nothing new that could be said about, about Munich. And I was very um, proud uh, as, as well as actually it was very moving and, and not wholly pleasant experience to, to, to write it, to delve back into it. Um, but with the help of Harry Gregg, who I'm, I'm very sorry to say has just left humanity, but uh, was a wonderful, wonderful man and, and threw open his home to me in, in Northern Ireland for a day into which we went forensically through everything. And um, with the help of Harry Gregg, I think I was able um, to write a, a definitive account of that day. And I'm very proud of it. And I'm very proud to have, through that, met the players who died. I feel, I'm, I, feel I got to know them a little bit. 
uh, through little details of their lives and the way one of them treated his children. He loved his children so much that he came back from a, a night out with the lads just to check that his, his wife and uh, one child, that his wife and child were, weren't sort of upset at back at home. And just little details uh, about their lives. That was I, I, something that I hope, hope people would enjoy. But also that it, there's a lot about football as well and a lot of football history. And, um, well, I just hope they like it. I, you can get it at Amazon. You can get it in bookshops. Um, I would say I'd recommend that people will get the paperback version, which is the one that you have. Um, the hardback version has a mistake in it. <laughs> what a mistake. Yes. Um, but uh, anyway, that was corrected for the paperback. But it was, on, uh, you know everybody makes mistakes but um yeah uh, i would uh, i'd love people to read it and because i would love the people at, at old trafford you know today people still map sing matt busby's name you know uh you know 20 times 20 times man united playing football the Matt busby way and a lot of them don't really really know as you said right at the beginning of this and and, and and it was such a good introduction because you said a lot of people have grown up thinking Alex Ferguson built Manchester United and he rebuilt it magnificently. But uh, the story of Matt Busby really, really needs to be known that the, the, um, the fans of Manchester United and of football as a whole, it, it, and I'm biased, but I passionately believe should know the history of Matt Busby. Absolutely, Paddy. It's been a joy and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thanks, Callum. It's been a pleasure, as always. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep-sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep-sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song